Greetings, everybody. My name is Jim Vagelon, in for Jason Miles for this special edition of This is Revolution podcast, in which we will be covering the protests that are currently taking place in Iran. We'll be running uh, uh, two episodes on this topic, one episode in which we will be dealing with the general dynamics of these protests taking place in Iran, and another episode episodes which we are recording right now we are going to focus specifically on the Kurdish issue in Iran and the relationship between that issue and the current tumultuous events taking place in the Islamic Republic so uh, this is a pre-record so when you're watching this with this will not be live but we do welcome any support you can give to the channel through patreon or super chats or tips that helps keep Jason in I don't know, um, whatever Jason eats. Uh, But joining me today to talk about the Kurdish issue is the one person on the This Is Revolution channel uh, who is going to help me discuss with our guest today uh, about what's going on in Iran, uh, a true Kurd expert, (laughs) Stefan Bertram Lee, a Kurd expert. You're a Kurd expert. Okay, um, yeah, if, if anyone in the chat is, they, they're, they're scared of typing the chat because they, they think that Jason or Pascal might make fun of them, or G might make fun of them, this is a pre-record, so just type, spam, whatever the stupidest things you can think of in the chat, and uh, yeah. it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Jason will read them, but he will impotently rage about them because he can't reply to immediately. Yeah, he'll, so he'll just post, he'll post about them in the uh, group chat. In the group chat, he will like, did you see what this person said at the chat? It was me. Well... Uh, to discuss this important issue with us today, we have, uh, well, I couldn't think of anyone better to discuss it with, it is a friend of show, Dastan Jassim, a fellow Khanakini, uh, you know, from my father's hometown, you know, so she's from the hood, as we say, in America, uh, and, you know, she's a expert, she's another, she's another true Kurtzbert, so, uh, without further ado, Let's get cracking. Let's welcome uh, Dastan. Hi, Dastan. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm okay. Uh, and I hope you are enjoying your travels, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. So uh, the topic that we wanted to cover today, obviously, are the protests in Iran, and protests are taking place across the country. You know, uh, there are a lot of different forces and dynamics at work on the ground, there are forces outside of Iran seeking to shape the narrative, seeking to take advantage of the current discord in the Islamic Republic. Uh, but you know, one of the things I think, not always, but sometimes gets uh, uh, forgotten in this whole tumult is the peculiarities of Iran's Kurdish question and how uh, the Kurdish question has played into these. Um, uh, protests. I think it, people should be aware that the uh, the young lady who was murdered by the the Shadi, the the, the morality police in Iran, was from Sakhiz. Uh, she was not from Tehran. She was a, a Kurdish woman from Sakhiz, Jina Amini. Um, and you know the the protests, as far as I understand, began in Sakhiz and then spread subsequently. Uh, to the rest of the country. Now we're going to be also talking to uh, uh, another friend of the show, Askenda, about the kind of general dynamics 
of how this is being received in the rest of Iran. But, um, you know, we wanted to discuss with you, you know, what's going on in Iranian Kurdistan and, you know, how things are, um, you know, progressing and how this is being received and understood amongst the Kurdish community. So I think Stepan will kick us off with the first question. So, you know. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to ask kind of if you could give an outline to people that have not been paying attention or have only been paying attention in the most general terms of kind of what have the events been since the protests first broke out in the days after the murder of, of Gina and think how things have progressed or even not progressed since then. Yeah, well, this important topic. Um, well, basically everything on Gina Amini was um, taken and stopped and then taken by the morality of September. Um, and she was beaten up so severely that she was in the hospital. Um, and pretty much she was in Tehran just to the very common that people just often out of, you know, economic reasons have relative of Iran. If you look at the economic numbers, it's very obvious. Most companies, also most educational opportunities are in the center. So this is all the topic of ours, the center periphery relationship in Iran. Mm -hmm. um, and brother and taken away and beaten up very severely. We have all of these MRI pig that was leaked by hospital personnel. And then on the 16th, um, she, she did not survive this coma. Um, and what happened is something I would say overall in the political landscape, but especially in the Kurdish context, if someone was killed or died for political reasons, you are the burial with a protest, mm -hmm. and you have like a protest right afterwards. It's like example also for this is, for example, the aftermath of the Roboski in 2011, which was also one of the big, biggest protests. Or, for example, the Kamishlo massacre, same thing, you know, many people were killed and people were gathering and, you know, um, showing the systematic nature really. It's one thing to say goodbye to a loved person, but it's another thing to this did not happen out of the blue. This is like there is some systematic thing behind it. Like people were right away way gathering when they brought her body back to Saqqet, uh, when they went to the graveyard, you know, you know the mother was screaming um, on, on dawn, it says, you know, she's like, like a martyr, she's a shaheed, like, you know, it was a star that the family was also sending a message, and we know that Raisi actually tried to contact the family from the first day upon after she died um, due to the injuries and the dad well and he was actually not having it and we know directly from the family that was actually like um, also in prison for some uh, days um, was actually not reacting to what Grace um, mm. said which was the old bring light to everything we're going to tell you what's, ha what's 
happened, you're gonna see justice for it. And you know, obviously, in a in a in a dictatorship like Iran, like Iran, many people would be afraid to you know not give in to the. But he didn't give in, and that was when kind of and well probably about kind of how political action is in the underground Dutch. Obviously, all, all Kurdish parties are outlawed in Iranian Kurdistan. Nevertheless, so when they caught up on the family being so active and obviously the population being thing that happened. I mean, I, I remember even me, me being someone from Europe, like this was like one of the first news that I got. Like I was following this when she was still alive about this so, so imagine how angry people were when she died so civil society they caught up on this and they were like we got to do something so while 16th 17th 18th we had the um we had uh, marches in Sakas and Sina, um, uh, in Sina we had in many 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 different cities Urmia Bokan, all of these cities based um, uh, um, uh, Iranian Kurdish area. Um, what is going on? But the parties were deciding that on the 19th there should be a general for the Kurdish mm-hmm. cities. So what happened was like parallel to the 19th, we've seen some protests, like in Tehran, for example. But pick starting this whole process with this general strike. And that was like, because everything was closed, everything was shut down. And the periphery of Iran being economically very weak, there is not a big kind of general strikes, but there is a huge social effect. And this stuff was the Kurdish opposition parties are also very connected to the other underground structures mm. that we have in Iran. So everyone was, you know, everyone was involved. And now we see that this is like three weeks going on. And it's see that the method of the general strike, which obviously not everyone can use, is employed or self-employed or has some kind of economic relationship taken up by all kinds of other groups of society. So we see that string, you know, um, uh, kids in school are striking, right? We see all the pictures of young girls in the schools, you know, um, uh, screaming at their princes, all people from the regime and so on. They're all kind of uprojects of the regime, accepting that and we're there taking down the the Romanian pictures, all of that. So we see kind of a combination between, uh, let's say, um, online information distribution, which is obviously also the reason cutting down internet as one of the first measures. Um, with the activism being combined with the very long-standing political structures. So you kind of have the old school people that know how you, you know, and how 
you organize in little groups and how you communicate and how you do all of that strike is right i mean some people in europe forgot how what what that is some people in the west forgot what you can do with that so that but that combined with a very young community taking this measure and doing something with it and so this is like the perfect really see that while this is like a very civilian protest the iranian trying to securitize this and they are mm -hmm. trying to frame this as a secessionist probably vis-a-vis the kurdish and the baluchi population and the kurdish population and the underprivileged obviously but the southeast the baluchi areas that's really the country and what we see right now is that like a real massacre is going on there and like so, so just to, just to highlight, so you know when we're talking about the general strike, uh, you know these general strikes are primarily taking place in Kurdish areas, although uh, certain elements within the rest of Iran have participated, but also there have been significant political actions in other regions in which national minorities reside in Iran. I think for a lot of our viewers who aren't aware, Iran is a multinational uh, empire in many ways, in which uh, the Persian community is the largest, but it is one of several major communities in the country, which have different relationships with the uh, Iranian state. For example, historically, the Azerbaijani Turkish community that lives in Iran has had a relatively privileged position. Uh, within the economic and political structures of the Iranian state. But Kurds as Sunnis have been excluded uh, to a certain degree. And in economic terms, Baluch, who are a minority that live in south uh, eastern Iran as well as in Pakistan, uh, you know, they have the, uh, their economic situation is even more dire than the Kurdish economic situation. Um, so we've seen uh, acts of solidarity and uh, uh, actions uh, in, of protest in the Baluchi region. But what I think uh, Dastan is pointing to is that the application of violence, uh, although bad in places like Tehran and Rasht, is even more brutal in these uh, regions because the state lacks any kind of substantial legitimacy amongst these national minorities so has to resort to even greater levels of force to disperse uh, uh, disperse protesters and is constantly seeking to as you said Dastan call these actions separatist or secessionist actions which I think we have to highlight for our listeners here something very important which often gets missed is that uh well in the kurdish case which i know better um to my knowledge no mainstream kurdish political party in iran has ever advocated the complete secession of kurdistan from the iranian state the kurdistan democratic party of who's advocating for that the, the only who the, the, the party on. Yeah, like, but it, that doesn't have, that's like, there, doesn't have much no, of a... Yeah, it's a margin 
marginal group for those marginal group yeah there's there's none of the major groups though have ever advocated for complete secession from iran it's always been a question of uh, autonomy and national self-determination within a democratic iran this is historically true for most of the kurdish movement it's it's far rarer for kurdish nationalists or kurdish activists to advocate for complete independence than it has been for them to a, uh, advocate for some kind of autonomy and self-rule so when we hear you know these discussions of secession and separatism these are usually rhetorical tools deployed by the central government to polarize uh, 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 Iranians against the Kurds, to, to, to present the Kurds as being a fifth com column, uh, you know, wanting to destroy their country from uh, within. So these protests, you know, the, the, the question of national self-determination and national independence are not synonymous. And most Kurdish groups in Iran have sought to uh, you know, exercise that self-determination within the framework of a democratic Iranian uh, state. But it is the regime who is the one that's obsessed with se uh, separatism and, and things like that. So I just wanted to no, emphasize no. that point. Stefan? I also wanted to say that while there are various armed Iranian Kurdish factions, as far as I'm aware, none of them have taken any military action during this current civil conflict. While, as you say, on the other hand, the Iranian state has engaged in like a full military, like a cross-border military aerial exactly. campaign against exactly. them. I mean, if we look at it, like the, the drone attack that was conducted, um, it killed 17 people and it injured at least 50. And what we know is that a lot of these attacks were actually directly going drive. So we have seen pictures for example of this this couple where, where um you know lady was killed by one of the strikes and, and shortly after that her child was, was died as well but the, the child basically you know um was was secured for the uh, after after birth so so that's kind of the reality that is happening on the in baluchistan is also heavy military involvement like we see them like the besiege, um, you know, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard corps getting into going to the field, attacking them with RPGs. Like this is full-scale war, and that is like a this is discussed in like a certain liberal upper class Persian. They're not mentioning this at all. They're not showing that this is like a full-scale war issue like that i just want to add on on this national question is you know many people always saying leftist position a lot of people think oh well you know this is like a bunch of people that some cultural stuff too deeply and then they 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 ask for independence or whatnot but that's the first thing is that actively for like because of being part part of a you're much much more likely to be in poverty you're much more likely to have lower levels of health access, infrastructural support, all of these things. Like that's like a fact. Whatever statistics you look at, it's always the periphery, especially Kurdish, Gilaki, and uh, Baluchi periphery.
that is, and by the way, in the Northeast and Khorasan, we also have, have minorities. We have a lot of Kurdish people also very underprivileged, right? And then on the other side, you have to remember that the Iranian base and build on the idea of Iranian supremacy. That's also another part of the discussion. You know, neutral blueprint state that, you know, some people were just happening. But the state was very much founded in the first, like, like in the first uh, uh, half century uh, uh, with the monarchy specifically going into a direction that is a piece of the, the nationalism that we see in Europe. And uh, there's, for example, Iran, right? Iran means land of the Aryans. Like, let's remember that, that one. So when I am uncomfortable being like Kurdish people being called Iranians, it's because I don't know how the fact people are pronouncing this, right? But like, it, it's a very, very right wing foundation of that state. So when we talk about this whole secessionism, people are starting the history where minorities started to defend themselves, where some king was like, hey, you know what, uh, looks good, good, that looks inspiring. Let's do that in, 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 in Iran, right? And so, so that's the thing that. And when you look at the West and the Western relationship to, to Iran, it's like, you know, with the Arab states, it took a while when until they got war and all of that. Cause, because one side is the capital relationship, right? It's the capitalism. There is always some, you know, materialism background to everything. But the other thing, and we see that Iran was from the very beginning able to perfectly of like the more civilized, more cultured um, uh, uh, kind of uses to this kind of European ideal. And, and so from the beginning on, on, also on a symbolic relationship, they were very much close to the West. So it's a very, um, I know a lot of People are surprised. They're like, oh my God, I didn't even know there's Kurds in Iran. Probably some people. What? That's part of the reason why well, because I, Iran has different standing internationally. I think, uh, I, I, mean, I think one of the important things to understand about Iran is there is a, a big disconnect between the discourse of Iranian nationalism and the historical realities of Iran. You know, Iranian nationalists will often emphasize this like long continuous history that stretches back to ancient times. Uh, but the reality is, when we look at the nation building process in Iran, Iran was a relatively late comer to the nation building process. Political centralization in Iran, for example, unlike in the Ottoman Empire, where political centralization took place during the uh, second quarter of the 19th century, in Iran, the reform process was relatively lethargic, and it was only with the rise of the Pahlavi monarchy in the early 20th century that this uh, centralization took place. Uh, another important factor to note is, you know, these concepts such as Iran Shah uh, and, uh, you know, Iran, all these concepts, these were not synonymous with the notion of Persianness or the Fars uh, community in Iran until the 20th century. You know, uh, before then, Iranians, it, it, the, the Iranian dynasty was a Turkic dynasty. In fact, 
the critical dynasty that converted the Iranian state to the Shia branch of Islam was another Turkic dynasty, the Safavids. So Iran was a multicultural imperium in which the authority of the central government was relatively weak and there was a great deal of cultural and ethnic diversity. And as you point out, uh, Dastan, this is not just an issue with, for example, you have the national minorities, Kurds, Azerbaijanis, Baluchis, Arabs in, uh, uh, in the southwest, uh, uh, but also within the uh, Persian community, the Persian-speaking community, you have several very strong regional identities, uh, you know, Shumalis, uh, you have, um, you know, Bakhtiaris, Khorasanis, all of which have a, a, you know, strong regional identity. But of course, during the nation-building process in the 20th century, there was an attempt to align the concept of Persianness uh, with uh, with the concept of an Iranian national identity. And as you point out, there was a self-conscious effort of the uh, Iranian uh, nationalist elite to identify Iranianness with European civilization, because European civilization was seen as synonymous with bourgeois civilization. You know why? Why were all these? Why were Turkey and Iran obsessed with cultural Westernization? It was because they wanted cultural acceptance from Western capital, and uh, you know this is this is what uh, this is why everybody was forced to wear like Western hats in Turkey. In Iran, they were forced to wear the Pahlavi cap. So we have this process of uh, nation building, which in response we see the rise of you know counter hegemonic. Uh, identities, uh, you know, in uh, in face of, you know, repression and cultural repression from the state. And I would add to this, you know, there's the cultural aspect to it, obviously, uh, but there's the, like you said, Dastan, there's a material aspect to it. You know, some 50% of political prisoners in Iran are Kurds, and Kurds make up maybe as, as little as 8%, as much as 15%, but definitely nowhere near uh, uh, 50% of the population. That's number one. Kurds are most likely to uh, be, um, you know, executed for certain crimes. Now, you can look at the execution figures and, you know, the majority of the people executed by the Iranian state are being executed for smuggling, drugs offenses, these kind of things. The majority of people being executed aren't political prisoners. But there's a reason why these people are engaged in smuggling, drugs, all these things because the economic situation in in the region is so dire. You have these uh, Kurds are disproportionately rendered to the reserve army of labor in Iran. And you know, as I pointed out, Kurds aren't the ones who suffer the most in Iran, to be honest, as a national minority. You would probably say that the Baluch are the ones who are the most excluded because not only is there a national oppression thing, there is a kind of colorism in Iran because Baluchi people tend to be uh, a lot darker than people in the rest of Iran, so you have a kind of colorism coming in into play there. But the Kurdish issue is critical for the Iranian state because historically, Kurdistan has been a center of militancy in Iran. Uh, you know, partly because the Kurdish question is not contained uh, to Iran, and you know, like when we look at the formation of the Mahabad Republic, this attempt in the early 1940s, uh, in the late 1940s, to establish an autonomous Kurdish region. That attempt was realized not only with Iranian Kurds, but with defectors coming across the border from Iraq, 
you have uh, military officers and then you have Mullah Mustafa Barzani uh, crossing the border to support the Mahabad Republic. Uh, the and former, even earlier, if yeah, you go remember ahead. the Adi massacre in the 1920s already when in northern Kurdistan there were uprisings that were, you know, in Adi area, which is like the area, border area between Turkey. And that's where all of these you know, chieftains, political, um, were going back and forth and they were fighting there. And actually what we see is that in this time, actually all connected in the struggle. And the fight against the uprising in Zila, the, the um, turning point, if you will, was the point on at one of their first border agreements where they agreed that in any case they are going something against uh, you know Kurdish uprisings in that, that area and, and and that started back, back then um, contract that was going to this direction was already like back in the 30s and now we see that together are building a wall in this specific area as well so, so we see that there is like this um, to in any case fight against this kind of cross-border mobilization yeah I mean, so I, ha I actually have a, 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 a more specific question for you, Dastan, to move the conversation forward. So we've discussed, you know, the context of these protests, what type of actions have taken place. We've talked a bit about the historical uh, precedents, and you kind of moved on to the question of cross-border issues. And so I wanted to ask you about, you know, one of the slogans of the protests, not just in Kurdistan, but, you know, uh, across Iran is women a woman life freedom uh can you and also stefan since he's a he's been through the cadre education um can you uh can you talk a little bit about this slogan about what it means what is its context because today you know we're seeing you know clothing companies appropriate this the 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 former wa uh, the former wife of the uh Pahlavi Shah is tweeting it uh you know liberal yeah did you know that Stefan I was Shah Banu you know the you know what's going to be the worst when you get the Jinjian Azadi tramp stamps that's going to oh, be the I worst I love that actually like I love Jinjian Azadi skin and then all of the revenue goes into yeah support Armenia and the war again would actually be such a power move but like let me not dream tramp 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 stamps for Armenia there we go but um um but yeah uh Dastan, could you tell us a little bit about this origins of this slogan and you know its connection to the Kurdish movement I mean as is in a very short version of the feminist analysis that is our Kurdish movement which is that without gender liberation, there is not, not going to be, you know, economic, ecological, any type of liberation, right? Women, life, freedom. That's it. Liberate women, if you liberate, you know, gender roles, gender relations, all of that, have a chance at having a free life, right? right? Um, and it's like a very, very typical set. I talked about this protest that were after the burial. That was like the first slogan that people would chant. Used in all four parts of Kurdistan. So 
whenever you have any type of protest that is remotely going into or that is like remembering feminist um, uh, martyrs. Uh, so they immediately say that. And the origin of it is like in the Kurdish movement, um, Islam, uh, which uh, started with, with, the, with the establishment of, of the PKK and what is that um, very early on, on figures like uh, Sakina Jans to start this issue more and more and they, you know, actually um, argue in favor of in the overall guerrilla um, and not, not just having like a mixed group and, mm -hmm. and um, the engagement of, of many other women in that kind of movement, um, especially also like we have to say gender-based violence that, that also happened by the Turkish state against women. Like, like it's the first thing that always happened after the uh, Turkish, um, you know, uh, um, is that the first thing that they did was like imprison women that, that were active in, in the Kurdish movement of horrible things to them. So it was kind of movement against that and it was then incorporated a new um, paradigm of the PKK starting in the, uh, we see in Rojava the whole war against ISIS, the war against Turkish fascists is based on Jinjia Azadi. So there is there, there has never been Zinzin, um, but but that was Zinjian Azadi, and using that slogan, you should know of that history. Um, and I mean, I am in the city where attacked. Uh, Sakina Johnson was killed mm. in this city. Um, Just to clarify here. A lot of people are say, say that this is a phrase of Abdullah Öcalan, but as far as I know, it was Sakina Jansas who developed that slogan. Is that is that correct? I know, um, but we have to be fair with this kind of stuff. A lot of this in the 80s, 90s, so like the writings of Sakina Jansas and later on the writer, writings of Abdullah Öcalan is together by writings that they had in, um, you know, committees before or like letters that they exchanged all of that so there's like not perfect markers on it but it's fair this is the brain behind the the, the women's movements that we see right with, mm -hmm. with two comrades two female comrades um uh um, she, there was never any justice for her or any one of them um and so you know this slogan seriously you should first read into the analysis behind it and also behind it right right so Stefan any thoughts on this slogan was this a big slogan when you were uh, you know fighting in the revolution um, Jinjian Azadi was I, don't it think, I don't think specifically like really emphasize the slogan itself that much during my political education but what was emphasized was to elaborate slightly on what Stan said was kind of it's it's quite often to see in like for instance with the the boy he talked about how in the United States uh, kind of the white people were kind of captured by the racial system by being offered like a psychological way basically by being put in a, a like the white working class was put in like an advantage position compared to black Americans and that kind of captured them by the the ruling system. And what Ochilan is, is trying to say is that to go back to, to kind of the very beginning of civilized society, um, that 
men were first captured into the system by basically being like offered women. Uh, and women were kind of put in an inferior position and men, normal men, uh, were put in a, a superior position to them by kind of the first kind of uh, civilized societies. And this was kind of like a structure which allowed kind of the general impression of things to go on that, you know, it, these men found it acceptable that they were in a much, much inferior position compared to those that were ruling the states that they were in, but they found it acceptable because they were also in some sense a, a slave owner. Um, and Ocheline kind of says that the whole kind of system of, of advantage or, or privilege or whatever that we live under, that all these kind of structural systems emerged first from, and the most fundamental is this kind of gender inequality. Uh, and thus, if we kind of, if we remove this from the system, then like a really important building block has been removed and um, it'll be much more possible to make progress. I mean, I think this is a point. Uh, I mean, I'll, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what you, uh, Stefan and Dastan, think about this. I mean, ultimately, when we look at the Iranian regime and the possibilities to remove the Iranian regime, or indeed any other oppressive regime that exists in the Middle East, I mean, uh, it is, at the end of the day, going to depend on either the co-option of important elements of the military, which may not end well, because look what happens in Egypt. You end up, you have one bad dictator, then you have Islamists, and then you have another bad dictator, and it's just a, a merry-go-round of misery. But the other pathway is through the mobilization of critical elements of the working class, particularly oil workers and infrastructure workers who can bring the country to the, the knees. So obviously there are certain uh, groups in society, and this is, you know, just basic Marxism, that have a disproportionate, um, you know, uh, ability to overthrow the state. But so, for example, you know, people think I, I find it a little naive to believe that, you know, people think that, you know, teenage girls rebelling against the state is going to be able to overthrow the state because the state will deploy uh, whatever level of uh, uh, violence is required to repress those women and they don't have the socioeconomic power necessarily to attack the state. But I, what I do find fascinating and I think is important, I think is something very interesting about um, uh, PKK uh, ideology is that uh, and, and something I hadn't considered prior to this, I hadn't really considered deeply until this Iranian event, was that, you know, the entire history of the Middle East for the last 40, 50 years, and what Pascal likes to call the 50-year counter-revolution, has been the growing oppression of women. You know, uh, of course, the previous regimes were often very selective with the women's liberation question. But there's been definitely a conservative and reactionary Elan to politics, even within so-called secular Middle Eastern states. So it's, it actually strikes me as quite prescient for the emphasis to be placed on women because of the because of like the increasingly unbearable dead weight of uh, Islamic uh, theocracy upon the lives of women. And I think, you know, even if to overthrow a regime you will require action from the oil industrial workers and things like that, 
part of the a central part of that coalition is women and is national minorities because at the end of the day you know if you repress the rights of national minorities and women you're the the basic liberal democratic rights are not going to be far behind uh, you know and so much of the middle east's history is the road to the road to oppression for turks persians and arabs goes through kurdistan the consummation of autocracy and dictatorship in the region very often goes through the repression of the kurdish community and in more recent years with an increasingly reactionary uh, 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 stance towards women so jinjian azadi although i think it's like people are complaining that oh it's like being appropriated by liberals it's like well yeah like you were saying to me off air staff and it's like well that's what makes it a good slogan because it's like very easily for easy for people to appropriate uh, its meaning but it does i think have a resonance outside of the kurdish uh region which you know uh, which the kurdish region is one of the few remaining parts of the middle east where you do have some kind of mass left movement and in fact the only part of kurdistan where there's no left is iraqi kurdistan which is where the nationalists won but in the other parts i mean like well what's his name i would say you know from the barzani perspective what's good for the barzan like the barzanis <laughs> are the kurdish nation so what's if they what's good for barzanis is the le, le state barzani as the french yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's but you know i have to say like uh puk is you know puk is like uh it's like the barzanis but like a less like quality version of it it's the northern london uh bouncer Ru type of <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah the, the northern london bouncer type exactly i, I see you've been to the appropriate class the rude boy left it Extra but so i mean <laughs> on that so i want to I, I wanted to get you guys thoughts on on, on like how this slogan is appro being appropriated you know and how it relates to the question of women and you know does this have relevance outside of iran uh, i mean outside of iran even more justan you want to yeah. i mean i mean I, I i last week i read this freaking horrible, horrible article liberal in Germany who was like, oh, you know, there, there is a lot of oppression, but I'm pretty sure this person has not talked to an Iranian person or anyone from Iran. But yeah, but the, the Iranian people are looking at imperialism and they see that this is not a tip for them as well. And it's like, that's not the discourse. Women are dying every week. Like remember, like last year, a husband killed his um, her and, and was walking around with her head in hands, like right, and 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 that was on social media, and there was no one saying, oh well, that's ISIS, that's literal ISIS behaving like ISIS. There is no difference, right? So, and I get this leftist discussion about economic, you know, mobilization of a revolution and all of that but we have you can keep up people 
with a lot of symbolic stuff for a long time. Look at Turkey, mm. you have inflation, you have no economic reason to keep up this system. But like, you know, from a revolutionary avant-garde perspective, you obviously make that scream and be like, guys, let's um, take, take the means of shut this whole system down and like, you know, make an economic move totally get that but side of things you have to look into people's brains and what is it that on a symbolic level also is pissing people off massively and the generality like you can bring so many like i don't know people that will call ever that you talk about you can bring so many people in that will say oh the hijab is a symbol not is in iran that's it end of discussion like seriously like have you seen how the gender system of oppression is working in iran have you like four big bill chador wearing ladies that are gonna come by your hair okay punch you to the ground punch on you like with blood you know have people seen how it is when a woman is stoned like do they know that they do these things happening i think they banned it after 2010 or something but this this has been going on and i can i can go to that person and be like oh i think you also need to like uh, shut down the economy but you need people to like you, you need to mobilize people for level and the symbolic level is gender depression it's the racism that is everywhere in your like it's such a such a such a racist system people cannot like how racist it is so it's not reactionary to talk about these symbolic things it's not re how religion is really oppressing people and also we have to talk about youth obviously they are not armed and this and that and everything but they are the majority like they are the and they can do a lot of stuff they can change a lot of stuff and and mind you iran has been in the last um, 15 years to switch the economy away from the economy and to go more, more into, you know, tech, to go into services, to go into for that. You need young education people for, for that. So also them shutting down the university, shutting down campus, it also has an economic outcome, you know? So because that's the regime right now is. So I feel like this should also be a lesson to us in the West, how we're having Easter and religion and all of that. And I'm sorry, but like, like after, you know, ISIS, no justice for Yazidi women, still 3,000 Yazidi women, no Afghan girls not having access to education for, for more than a year now. I'm going to be sent to deny this. I'm not, I'm going to be damned to deny that this is the movement and i think i think what we can do is to find the middle between that is being appropriated to mm -hmm. spread which is like you know that's the goal like a mass movement has but at the same time you know work against the discourse to work against the discourse that is law related freaking you know where diaspora discourse and on the ground which is in any case uh, into the 
intersectional revolution, right? So the concept of intersectionalism is probably <laughs> those guys over there. <laughs> Any thoughts, uh, uh, Stefan, on this? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the slogan, is, as I was saying to you off air, I think Tastan said similarly uh, there, is it's kind of, it's something which is, obviously it has an orientation. There's a, there's a reason it is what it is, and it makes sense once you know kind of the philosophy. But obviously outside of that, it seems like something which could very easily slip in to kind of a liberal feminist discourse. But obviously people should regard that as kind of, obviously it can be appropriate, but should, you, people should regard it as like an opportunity because mm -hmm. it, it is a chance to go forward and say, well, this is the philosophy, this is the reason behind it, this is why it doesn't quite fit in with liberal feminism or, or whatever. It, it's a two-way door, right? You know, it's yeah. like, just as the, you know, liberals might appropriate it, you can appropriate liberals through the slogan. I'm sure yeah, Che Guevara and... was not happy with his furry face being on all these t-shirts. Well, well, poor, poor <laughs> Che Guevara. <laughs> suffered a fate worse than death, which was marketization by the international bourgeoisie. You know, that's the that's poor old Che Guevara's uh, thing. I mean, like, uh, the point I would make, uh, Dastan, it, my, my argument is not to say that, you know, uh, women and uh, other oppressed groups cannot, you know, and should not, you know, mobilize or should not vocalize their issues. In fact, I think it's pretty essential that those issues are vocalized because if you obfuscate them at the beginning, they will, as I said before, they'll be, you know, they will be repressed and that repression will form the basis for further erosion of general liberal democratic rights. You know, women, women and minorities are always the first to get their rights taken away, but then the majority soon after that will get its rights taken away. Um, no, my, my point was more of a tactical one in the sense that, you know, in order to sh really sh like the Iranian regime is not like the Shah's regime. The Shah's regime had like a very narrow base of support or it had at least a very fragile base of support. But the Islamic Republic does have like a significant proportion of the population, a significant min a minority of the population that will rally behind it. Uh, it's not like a completely Ill illegitimate. Uh, political order and that's exactly what makes it dangerous because these people will burn the country to the ground before allowing um, you know significant uh, reform in that country so my point about the you know the importance of oil workers and, and infrastructure was that you know that is something that can that can like concretely cripple the uh, the state's capacity not simply to operate, but to deploy violence. Right? I, I know, but but like to repeat what I said, that is the point of thought that you two parts of the movement. There is the avant-garde and there is the base, right? So as an avant-garde, you have to think about how do you change the regime? How do you take on the means of production? All of that specifically. And how do you win over the other people that are not there? But you also have to have a, because the legitimization here is what type of Iran do we want to have? And the mistake that they did not have a common idea of what the Iran is that they will build after the Shah. And that is the problem of Iran you want to have. That is a symbolic thing. That, that is about normative values. That is about what, what female revolution do we see? Where do we see young people here? Where do we see right. 
ecology to give it an image of what the world after the revolution looked like. And that's very much what Java is at this moment, not the utopia that it wants to be, but it's saying to you, where is where we want to go. And if you want to support us, come with us and we go on the way. And that's the thing, both sides, you have to approach it on the symbolic and on the material level. And that's the thing that the get wrong they think it's one or the other you know right yeah i wanted i wanted to ask on on the basis of that that i think there clearly is some kind of political program which is there in the kurdish regions which is um orientated by the kurdish freedom movement but also by kind of um the kurdish national parties or however and um, kamala um but do you think there is there's obviously a lot of protests in the persian part of iran also but do you think there actually is a political program there? Like, do, do are there clear demands that are outlined by the people that are, are, are protesting at universities in, in Tehran or whatever? Or is there like a, a missing element there? And that's exactly why people in the center have taken up the slogan, because they have a lack of a political program they, themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. I think more and more because we, we see that this discussion is emerging and there is even an exchange in the Kurdish sense, we have been outlawed on every level, but there has always been this kind of path, right? I mean, people have been, the four parts of Kurdistan, the different parties, all of them, they have been on a, um, you know, uh, not on a friendly level, but still there has been discussion. And this is the first time that this is happening. So I feel like the discussion is different. And there is more and more key points points to the discussion coming through, especially what we see online. We see that a lot of the people, for example, that get killed, that get attacked, it's bloggers, it's bloggers, it's mm. people that somehow take content and put it, you know, framing. And I think that's very much the start of this. And I, I think the reason why it became Junjian Azad is not only because it's like catchy or an eye or you guys Paris, but it's because, you know, there has not been a feminist slogan what Iranian diaspora mm. feminists would want to tell me, but something like this has not just been like an elitist thing, and it has not been there, especially not something that like men would scream all of the time, because it's also representing something for them, right, gender role overall. So, I think there is, of course, a danger that it's going to be at some point. But I, I think a lot of people have learned the lesson from that in the slogans as well. People say, you know, we don't want a dictator, whether it's whether it's the Shah. People are very clearly um, articulating these things. So I'm in the question of organization in which direction it goes. and I feel like in the diaspora have a huge influence on how that how how that direction goes because at the end of the century these people are cut off and we are, are kind of repeating their views we are sharing their views we are being not only technically but also as a so I feel like also as leftists we have to take up some responsibility in this discussion to like some of these uh, reactionary uh, traps. I mean, I'll tell you recently, 
like I, I got a request from someone who was like, Dustin, we would like to, to talk about how the German right can use movement to, to make right wing points against Islam. Boy, oh boy, let me tell you one thing. The German right has never, ever needed anyone. <laughs> <laughs> they were there long before y'all knew about the word. How the discussion goes, you're taking the very narrow little national discussion, discussion like, oh, there's a huge bad movement. Let me take that and solve my problem here. How you're being supported from outside right and, and lord knows she got an answer well good job Destan. uh you know she messed with the wrong the wrong person <laughs> well we are up the against the hour Hanakini front. yeah the Hanakini so um uh we're up against the hour i want to thank you Destan, for taking time to talk to us today it was a pleasure as thank always so stefan Thank you for waking up so early to come. What, what's that face for? You're a PhD student and you're up before six o'clock in the evening. That's an achievement. <laughs> I right? wake up in the morning at exactly the same time every day uh, because I was taught revolutionary discipline by the Kurdish Freedom Movement. Yeah, Stefan is very disciplined. He's a, the, the Kurdish Freedom Movement disciplined him. Um, <laughs> they, they, they do they, those things. They should have a, we should like, we should set it up as a, um, you know, want to talk about appropriation. We can make it as like a weight loss program for people in the West, <laughs> you know, like a lifestyle thing where you go to Rojava and you go through the country training. The Kurdish thing also happening because also the whole issue of packing up guys in a little bag. Yeah, there you go. We'll have, you could be the Kurdish. Uh, Kurdish I, I always Kurdish. thought if, if, if there was like, if Rojava ever got an airport, it would just get the most ridiculous kind of tourism. Oh yeah, there would be so there would be so many weirdos going there. That's so true. many weird Germans. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, weird German is a little bit of a redundant <laughs> statement, right? They're like, "Hello, I'm from Germany. Yeah. My name is." But you know, I think uh, I think Dustin ha Dustin has a lot of the Teutonic culture in her. She's she's very very. Ab huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you for tuning in. And as we say on This Is Revolution, we are out.